This podcast is part of the Democracy Group. Welcome to Democracy Matters, the podcast of the James Madison Center for Civic Engagement at James Madison University. I'm your co-host, Kara ong This is Abe Goldberg, director of JMU Civic and faculty member in the Department of Political Science here at James Madison University. In this episode, we're delighted to have David J. Toscano, who served 14 years in the Virginia House of Delegates representing the 57th District, which includes all of Charlottesville and parts of Albemarle County. David was first elected in 2005, and his priorities included education, renewable energy, environmental protection, affordable health care, reproductive rights, expanded services for the disabled and poor, and reforms to Virginia's adoption and foster care laws. He was the Democratic leader in the House of Delegates from 2011 to 2018. And he also served on Charlottesville City Council, including a a stint as mayor. Today, we're going to be talking with him about his new book, Fighting Political Gridlock, How States Shape Our Nation and Our Lives. Thank you so much for joining us, David. It's great to be with you. And uh, thanks so much for what you're doing. It's uh, really critically important, especially at this time when our democracy is facing so many challenges. The more people we have discussing these issues, the better, and you're doing a terrific job with it. Thank you so much. We really appreciate that. I actually wanted to start by asking you, how do you define democracy, and what would a thriving democracy look like to you? You know, it's an interesting question. It got me. It gets me thinking back to when I was first elected to uh, the city council, local government, which is the government closest to the people, you know, you want to think of democracy as a system by which people have basic control over the, the really important decisions that affect their lives and can participate actively in uh, the decisions and how they're made, either more directly at the local level through city councils, boards of supervisors, planning commissions, boards of uh, education, school boards, or at the state through their representatives or uh, through the federal government through their representatives as well. I mean, key to this is this notion that we should try to involve as many people as we can and give voice to people who feel voiceless, because there are a lot of people out there on all sides of the political spectrum that feel voiceless, who feel like uh, the decisions are out of their control, that no one listens to them, uh, that they're losing uh, their ability to control their lives. Democracy is all about restoring that ability and enhancing it. And it's also about what our founders referred to as civic virtue, the concept that we are all made better when we're all participating as much as we can in making the society better. That was at the heart of Jefferson's notion of uh, the, the uh, pursuit of happiness. And it was key to the founders and how they thought about structuring the country. In your new book, Fighting Political Gridlock, you argue that addressing the challenges to democracy must start at the state and local level. Why do states matter? And why should we be focusing on state and local government to repair democratic norms, practices, and institutions? Well, I think much of the public is ignoring 
the importance of states, and they're doing it at their peril. Uh, there is such a focus on national politics that uh, we're losing track of the fact that it's in the states where a lot of national politics and decisions get affected. So you take things like redistricting, which we are now in the midst of, we have to do it every 10 years. Redistricting, (laughs) contrary to what some in the public think, is not done at the congressional level. It is all done at the state level by state legislatures. And the way they draw, these legislators draw maps, both for the congressional districts and for state representatives and state senators, uh, will determine who gets elected to these various offices and therefore what policies are enacted, especially at the federal government. So what's happening now which is, is very interesting. Most states do not have independent redistricting commissions. We can talk about that at some point if you want. In most states, it's all the state legislatures. And the state legislatures are now enacting these maps that have a predominant Democratic slant or a predominantly Republican slant. The difference is that Republicans control more of the state legislatures around the country. And so they are generating maps that have to tend to create more Republican-leaning districts. You know, some people think that the redistricting process itself is likely to produce a result in 2022 where the Republicans take back control of the House of Representatives. So how these maps are drawn determine who gets elected and what policies get enacted. But it's not just about that. It's about voting rights, too, because it's not just the districts where the lines are drawn, but what the electorate looks like and whether they can vote that will have an impact on who gets elected. So voting rights, generally speaking, are a state function. And we're seeing this historic struggle occur in state legislatures and state houses around the country about the level to which we will encourage people to participate through things like early voting, mail-in voting, uh, remote uh, access voting, things that will encourage greater amounts of participation and expand the electorate, that will inevitably have an impact on who gets elected and therefore the policies that are elected at the federal, that that are adopted at the federal and state level. So David, I just want to follow up um, because redistricting is so consequential for who and how individuals and communities are represented and for policy outcomes at both the state and the federal level. Um, What do you think can be done to ensure a more equitable distribution of power through redistricting reforms? And do you see any potential um, or pitfalls in reforms to redistricting, especially given the failure of Virginia's independent, quote unquote, redistricting, independent redistricting commission? You know, that's a great question. And uh, I was in the legislature when uh, we first considered the constitutional amendment that ultimately was adopted last year by which we set up in Virginia a bipartisan redistricting commission. Note, I said bipartisan, not independent. 
an independent commission would be run by people who do not have distinct political affiliations and therefore would have less of a chance of, of being mired in the partisan gridlock that you saw emerge during the discussions of the Virginia uh, redistricting commission. I've been a big proponent of redistricting reform for a long time. The redistricting uh, reform that was enacted in Virginia uh, is something that was a good idea that when you operationalize it, turned out not to work very well. And people could have predicted that if they had only taken the time back in uh, 2019 to really talk about what this commission would look like. That, um, as for those of you who don't know, uh, Virginia operates uh, under a system whereby constitutional amendments can only be added to our constitution if they are adopted with the same language by legislatures and our legislature in two successive sessions interrupted, separated by a general election. If those two things happen where the legislature passes the bill two times, it gets on the ballot for voters to vote on. And if voters vote for it, it will be placed in the Constitution. So it's not easy to amend the Constitution, but there's a good reason why our 1971 Constitution had this set up. They wanted to give legislators an opportunity to think about whether they wanted to vote for some measure to be put before the voters. And I think some people had a lot of second thoughts about this proposal in Virginia. I think what it points out is that really good concepts require a lot of time and discussion before enactment so that mistakes are not made. And that is especially true when it involves constitutional measures which are almost impossible to get rid of once they're in the Constitution. I'm kind of like the Iowa approach, whereby there's a bi uh, an independent commission that works with staff to generate the maps, and then those maps go to the legislature for a vote. The legislature can turn down the maps, in which case they have to be redrawn again by the independent group, and they come back to the legislature. So you always have a partisan check, but it isn't a partisan veto. And I think uh, the partisan veto is what happened in Virginia to our detriment. Your book explores a wide range of policy issues over which states have significant authority, and more so than what we find in the federal government in terms of determining outcomes. Where states are the locus of power, this can lead to a great deal of variation in approaches to addressing pressing problems, ranging from the COVID-19 pandemic to climate disruption. Can you speak to how you view the opportunities and challenges that result from this variation between states based on differences in socioeconomic and political institutions and culture? Well, it's a good news, bad news story. Um, the good news is that it, it, when states innovate, uh, the, they have an opportunity to, to test out ideas to see if they work and see if they might be applicable to other states or indeed the country. 
A classic case of innovation was in 2006, where Massachusetts, under the governorship of uh, Republican Mitt Romney, embraced what was at that point essentially a Republican concept as to how to solve the, the, our health care problems and how to get people more access to health, health insurance. It was called the individual mandate. And the concept was that everyone ought to have skin in the game. Everyone ought to have to get health insurance. And for those people who could not afford it, they would get subsidies from the government to enable them to purchase it. And that way, there would be more people in the pool. The cost of insurance would come down and there would be more people insured. That was an innovation in Massachusetts in 2006. And people in Congress liked it so much. And the president at the time, Barack Obama, liked it so much that it became the model for the ACA, the Affordable Care Act, which has now been in place since 2010. So that's a good example of states innovating. Now, you've got some downsides to it, too, because the, the, the concern is that the states become too fractured over time, that there's too much of a disagreement in policies across state lines that create problems for uh, the public. Uh, Let's take, well, abortion now is emerging as a a really, is a huge issue. It's always been that way, but uh, today uh, the Supreme Court is hearing the case out of Mississippi, which essentially will uh, restrict abortion uh, and is designed to challenge Roe v. Wade with an eye to hopefully overturning it in their their view. If that were to occur, then all abortion decisions would uh, revert to the states, and you could have 30-some states that have some degree of rights, and you could have 20-some states that have a different level of rights. And so you have diversity across these states, which creates some complications. And In point of fact, you have the danger now that you're creating this group of red states and group of uh, blue states where there's lots of differences and not as much commonality as we would like to think. Uh, That's always been the challenge of federalism. I don't think that's going away anytime soon. Uh, We'd like to be able to encourage innovation, but we also have to be mindful that this country is one country and that we need to figure out ways to work together as a whole. That's the role of the Congress and the president. I want to follow up and ask how we balance a desire for local control of public issues with problems and opportunities that affect regions. So for example, transportation or economic development, where it might make sense for local governments, county governments, to collaborate with each other um, when creating sort of these these um, opportunities to work together as a region to address regional problems. How do we balance that with a need and a desire that people have for local autonomy? That's a great question. Um, you know, as, as a former local official, I can't tell you how many times 
we thought it was a good idea to do one thing or the other, only to find that our state, uh, that our uh, local government attorney would say to us, wait a minute, you can't do that because we're a Dillon rule state and the state won't allow you to do it. For those of the people who don't have never heard the term Dillon rule, it's a way that uh, a number of states operate, which basically says that if localities are not granted the specific authority to do a thing by the state, then they can't do it without permission. So every year in Virginia, while I was in General Assembly, we would get these bills that people called enabling legislation. They would come from localities in order to enable a locality to do one thing or the other. Uh, in Virginia, the classic case would be uh, uh, for a locality to be able to enact transit occupancy taxes for on hotels when people came to visit the communities. Uh, that had to be approved by the General Assembly. There is no, there is no broad authority for any jurisdiction to enact such a tax without the legislature approving it. And you find similar arrangements all across the country where localities are essentially cut out of uh, doing things that they want to do. We would have stupid things like uh, locality would have to petition the General Assembly for permission to cut weeds on private property that were a health uh, a health hazard. We get these crazy bills every year from every county around. We usually enact them. Eventually, we gave all localities the ability to do this, but this shows you how silly it can be. Uh, at the same time, you've got some places where under the state constitution, the localities are already granted a substantial amount of power. These are called home state uh, uh, jurisdictions, uh, and, and those jurisdictions can do certain things uh, without having to seek authority. But at the same time, the state can always come in and what they call preempt the local authorities from doing it because the state has substantial powers built in the constitutions that localities don't have. You always will have this dynamic uh, friction between the localities and the states in every place you go. And we could talk some more about some of the regional issues you raised if you want to. Uh, I've gone on about the Dillon rule and preemption, which is in the middle of my book. Uh, but it's something that people have to understand because localities don't have as much control as people think they might have. David, I want to ask you about the fractious nature of our politics and our fragmented system of government uh, governance. Do you think it's possible in that kind of a context to build a shared sense of purpose and identity? And what opportunities do you see for bringing policymakers and people together on divisive issues, whether it might be criminal legal system reform or policing or immigration, all issues that you, you write about in your book? Well, I don't think we have a ch choice but to do this, because if we don't, we're going to lose our democracy. And you see the sort of beginnings of... Uh, of the disintegration occurring over the over the last several years, the, one of the biggest concern that I had that emerged out of the 2000, 
2020 presidential election is the general attack on the legitimacy of our elections process. There's very little evidence of fraud in our election process and certainly nothing that would generate a change in the outcome of elections. Now, you do have people who violate the law. You do have people who commit fraud. But it's not of a kind that basically allows somebody to steal an, an election. But what happened during this election was that people began talking about the need to audit these results and to audit the results in by a partisan mechanism. You know, all states audit their election results. They do it on a regular basis. That's not a partisan thing. They want to make sure the voting machines are collecting the data in a way that reflect, you know, the people's choice on who should be elected. But this was different. This was suggesting that the voting process was fundamentally flawed. And once that starts to happen, the legitimacy of the entire system is undermined. So we have to have leaders, uh, not just in the political arena, but also in the business community and nonprofit community, step up and say, uh, and say that this is a lie. We're not going to tolerate this. We have a safe system. We have an election system that works. We don't have very much fraud. We always can make it better. Let's, let's acknowledge that. But uh, the legitimacy of the system has to be upheld because if we don't do that, our elections will be undermined and we can lose our democracy. Now, how do you do this? Well, there are heroes out there. I mean, you look at Brad Raffsenberger out of Georgia, a Republican, very conservative, uh, has tended to support a number of the uh, measures in Georgia that people would, some people would define as voter suppression measures. Uh, that's a definitional issue, but, and he was a big Trump supporter. But when Trump called him and asked him to find 11,000 votes in Georgia so they, they could flip the result, he basically said no. And he defended the legitimacy of the system, even though he didn't like the result. That was a profiling courage. And what did he get for it? He got a primary from Trump supporters who want to throw him out. Remember, the Secretary of State in Georgia is an elected position. And you find a lot of folks out there who are attacking election officials just because they're saying that the elections are proper. In Arizona, what you had is Democratic uh, Secretary of State Katie Hobbs coming under fire from Republicans who then passed a bunch of bills restricting her ability to uh, monitor the election. And so all of these things are happening around the country and it's incumbent upon leaders to step up. Uh, I've heard countless people say, and political leaders say, well, I think we need to look further into this because the public believes there's something wrong. Well, that's just feeding it. If people know there's nothing wrong, they need to stand up and say it. Uh, and that's what we elect our leaders to do. Hopefully, they'll do it more often. We have to celebrate those people on both sides of the political uh, perspective. And uh, I think the reckoning is going to come from the de for Democrats, too, because there are people out there 
who are saying and doing certain things that really make it difficult to uh, work together to get things done. There's a chapter in my book on criminal justice because that is also a state-focused thing. Uh, The reason why people are in jail is they violate a state law, they are prosecuted by a state court, their sentence is determined by sentencing guidelines adopted by a legislature, their decision about whether they get parole, if at all, and under what conditions is determined by state government. And if you look at all the people incarcerated around the country, the vast, 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 vast majority are incarcerated in state prisons, not in the federal system. There are only about 70,000 cases that were processed in the criminal arena in the federal system last year. There are hundreds of thousands in state courts. The good news, at least the way I look at it, is that people are beginning to realize that people have to have consequences for their actions. And people who are very, very dangerous need to stay in jail for a long time to protect the public. But there are a lot of people who perhaps can get out of jail faster than we've been allowing them to get out and to be rehabilitated in the process before they get out. That is a realization that has been hitting conservative groups like the Americans for Prosperity and the people associated with the Koch brothers, very conservative, and liberal groups who think it's that, that there are racial discriminatory practices in sentencing and uh, uh, charging uh, people for crimes particularly around drugs that some folks think are nonviolent, and those people ought not to be serving as much time in jail. So you've got cost concerns, uh, fairness concerns, and this whole idea of redemption that are mixing together in state state houses to force a reexamination of the criminal justice system in the United States by re-examining it in the states. That is a key development, and it's one that has bipartisan support, a good thing. I do want to follow up on your comments about criminal justice um, largely being within the domain of the states. It, It does strike me that we have a national issue with mass incarceration So is this a situation where a national issue is going to be dealt with at the state level, or are there not things we can be doing at the national level to be addressing this national problem of mass incarceration? Well, I think you can do a lot of things at the national level, but it's not going to change what happens at the states where people get charged and then convicted. Let's say you reduce the mandatory minimums at the federal level, and you no longer made it a felony to to possess more than a certain amount of marijuana for distribution. Now, that might mean that the numbers of prisoners would drop in the federal system by half, but you still have hundreds of thousands of people in state courts and state prisons 
that they that are there because they violated state law. And the action at the federal level, while important and significant, would have nothing to do with those people in state prisons. The mass incarceration problem is a state problem that is is amalgamated in the states because you added all 50 states together and what you get are hundreds of thousands of people incarcerated. In fact, I think it's maybe with the exception of Honduras, I think it's the largest percentage of the population of any country in the world. I believe that's the case. It's certainly up there. So, David, you conclude your book with a number of recommendations for reimagining civic engagement. Um, and in fact, that's the, the, the title of the chapter, Reimagining Civic Engagement. Um, personally, I was drawn to your recommendation that we should first embrace the truth and complexity of our history, especially as it relates to racism and racial injustices. Given how contentious and politicized truth has become, how can we best go about having hard conversations, bringing people into meaningful discussions, and then repairing and redressing harm through concrete actions and policies? Well, I think that's, that's the critical issue of the next decade for the country. And I think we have to recognize that lots of people feel aggrieved. You know, I, re- I remember my first run for city council, I, I campaigned on the notion that I was trying to give voice to the voiceless. And the way I defined it, the voiceless at the time were racial minorities and uh, people who were poor. Uh, when I, After I got elected, I realized that there were a lot of people who felt left out. And it wasn't always associated with economic status. There were some people who just felt they had they, they were discouraged from saying anything about anything and they needed some help too. And we had to find ways to help them too. So let's take a look at Virginia. Virginia is becoming kind of two states. One is a state that is what we call, we call the urban crescent that runs up 95 through Richmond and down to Hampton Roads. That's where the Democrats get their votes with pockets in Roanoke and Charlottesville. And then the rest of Virginia, Rova, they call it, but it's rural Virginia in which the economic challenges are acute. A lot of the region is losing population. Lots of challenges with the institutions that traditionally have bolstered those communities no longer in existence. And those folks uh, feel aggrieved. They feel like in some ways they're, they're losing their country, their country's out of control. And some of that explains the vote for Yunkin in, in uh, 2021. Certainly the Trump vote has a lot to do with that. So trying to figure out how to talk with folks that are different from those regions, as well as recognizing that we have a long, long, torturous history of racial uh, uh, inequality uh, based in slavery and discrimination that people are just waking up to, and they need to wake up to it because 
people need to understand it. And you'd be surprised how little people understand about sort of reconstruction and what happened after the Civil War and how blacks who were supposed to get rights never got them. You know, in Virginia, it was funny because we had a biracial uh, government uh, in Virginia in the early 1880s that was gone within three years. And then we had the 1901 Constitution to disenfranchise blacks. What's disturbing to me, and this is where we come back to states matter, curriculum in schools is a state issue. And you're getting a huge fight occurring in the states about racial uh, reconciliation and the truth about our history. It's not just critical race theory, which a lot of us think is very difficult for people to, um, to explain, and the academic byproduct of, race, uh, of critical race theory really in some, doesn't make sense to a lot of people, myself included. I don't think you can see everything, explain everything through the lens of race. But things like the New York Times 1619 Project, which is designed to help people understand slavery and discrimination, that is being eliminated from some of the curriculum in schools in some places like Texas. And these are decisions that are being made at the state legislative level and the, the state boards of education level. That is a huge problem. And people need to engage with the state, their state legislature. This is not going to be solved by electing a president of the United States or electing a congressperson or a senator. It's going to be solved at the state level. And if we neglect who we vote for at the state level, we're ceding the ability to control that curriculum to some people we may not agree with. You have been a public servant for decades, both at the local and state levels. And I'm curious, as a final question, if you could give some advice to our listeners, particularly young people, as they consider engagement in public service. It's the greatest job in the world. And, uh, and when people see it, they'll realize it because you can make a tremendous difference in people's lives and you don't have to be elected to do so, uh, get engaged at their local level and their state level where they can have the most impact. Uh, secondly, you have to understand that, uh, democracy, the fight for democracy is not just being fought in Washington, it's being fought in the States and you have more of an impact what's happening in the states and you do on washington simply because you have more access to your representatives so i would encourage people to take an issue that they really feel passionate about and find some people at the local level who feel the same way and then try to interact with your state rep or your local government official to see what you can do charlottesville i always love charlottesville because i would say it's large enough to have cosmopolitan amenities, good theater, live music, books, museums, but small enough where one person can make a difference. That's certainly true of Harrisonburg. So people, one person can make a difference. For young people who are looking for a way in, the Sorensen Institute for Political Leadership, which is a group of, which is a group that is nonpartisan in focus, where people uh, take classes or engage with other uh, younger people around the Commonwealth to discuss what is important, 
to the Commonwealth and what motivates people in different regions is a great introduction to some of this. It's one of the few programs like this that exists in the country, and it probably should be the model for a number of other programs that should be uh, put into place in, in other states. Because the Sorenton Institute is trying to train the next generation of leaders, not just elected ones, but people who understand that Virginia is a commonwealth and we rise and fall uh, uh, as we support the least of us. So I hope people will simply jump in and get engaged. And it's not like you have to do it constantly, but be engaged to the extent people feel comfortable and you'll find great gratification that emerges from that. Thur recognizes that, you know, we don't have all the answers and we're going to have to take some innovative actions to test out various things uh, to make sure democracy survives. Um, fourth, recognize that the truth really does matter. There are no such things as alternative facts. There are alternative explanations, it's, and it's perfectly reasonable to argue about them, but forget this notion that there are, are alternative facts. And if the evidence supports by a wide majority uh, uh, a perspective, embrace it. Uh, as leaders, embrace the notion that our elections are free and uh, are fair with little fraud and summons the courage to step up and say to people who are part of your base that this is not true. We're not going to take that position. John McCain, Barack Obama, when McCain said that Obama is not somebody who's a threat to the country, that they just disagree. Uh, and finally, follow the rules because the rules set the political guardrails within which we operate. There got to be some consensus about rules so that we can talk to each other. And boy, we need to talk to each other more than ever. Hi, podcast listeners. Thank you for tuning into this episode of Democracy Matters. Editing and production was done by Jacqueline Dobrin, JMU Civics Communications Specialist. Randy Bednickus, Director of Digital Marketing at JMU, does this indication for us. Our theme song is Sometimes It Shines by Pictures of the Floating World. Be sure to follow us on social media. You can tweet your questions and ideas to us at JMU Civic, and we'll address them in a future episode. You can also connect and engage with us on Facebook at JMU Civic. Learn more about the James Madison Center for Civic Engagement at James Madison University on our website at j.mu civic. Until next time.